Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 117, Space Shuttle Flight 46, STS-45, Photon Torpedoes. Last time, we talked about the science-packed flight of STS-42. The pressurized space lab module was back in the payload bay, and the crew were working around the clock to squeeze all the data they could out of it. With each space lab mission, the shuttle was yet again proving its worth as a platform for science in low Earth orbit. Which is good, because today's flight is also a space lab flight. But instead of the pressurized laboratory we saw last time, STS-45 will be using the unpressurized space lab pallets, bristling with instruments. Twelve specialized instruments would study the sun, distant stars, and the atmosphere of the Earth. We've actually seen most of these instruments already, since almost all of them flew on Space Lab 1 on STS-9, with a few others flying on other Space Lab missions. In fact, some folks involved with the mission went so far as to call this a reflight of Space Lab 1. I'm not really sure what changed between STS-9 and now, but we're now referring to this package of instruments as ATLAS, making this ATLAS-1. Reflying makes sense to me, though. If you can fly the same instruments again, you can more easily compare the results to the data you took the first time. In fact, this was expected to be the first of 9 or 10 Atlas flights over the next 11 years. Flying every year or so for 11 years would allow scientists to capture data over the course of a full solar cycle. We don't have time to get into what exactly a solar cycle is, but every roughly 11 years, the Sun's complex magnetic field dynamics trace out a similar pattern. It was first noticed hundreds of years ago by astronomers counting sunspots on the sun's surface. Since the cycle can impact the behavior of the upper atmosphere and the energy output of the sun, it would be better to gather data at multiple points in the cycle. I'm not sure why yet, but skimming ahead, it looks like Atlas only flew three times. Here in 1992, again in 1993, and one last time in 1994. Maybe we'll find out more a few episodes down the line. STS-45 wasn't the only mission contributing data towards the effort to better understand the interaction between the sun and upper atmosphere during this flight. While Atlantis enjoyed its stay in orbit, we'd have a regular space party, with coordinated operations between the shuttle and URs, which we talked about in episode 114, ERBS, which we talked about in episode 80, and Nimbus 7, NOAA 9, NOAA 11, and the Russian satellite Meteor 3, which we talked about in episode... this episode. URs and Atlantis would even be flying over the same areas at the same time. With all of their data combined, scientists should be able to better tease out what was really going on. Commanding the mission was Charlie Bolden, flying for the third time. We last saw him flying as pilot on STS-31, which deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. We'll see him one last time a few missions down the road. Joining Bolden up front was our pilot, Brian Duffy. Brian Duffy was born on June 20th, 1953 in Boston, Massachusetts. He earned a bachelor's degree in mathematics from the U.S. Air Force Academy and later a master's in systems engineering from the University of Southern California. The Air Force then taught him how to fly, specifically the F-15. He went on to do so at the Langley Air Force Base in Virginia and the Kadena Air Base in Okinawa, Japan, before heading off to test pilot school. I'm pretty sure that in Japan they'd pronounce that Kadena, but people seem to use Kadena for the base, so whatever. After graduating test pilot school, he became the director of F-15 tests at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida before being selected as an astronaut in 1985. This is his first of four flights. Sitting behind Duffy was our old friend Mission Specialist 1, Kathy Sullivan. 
we last saw Sullivan flying alongside Bolden on STS-31, the Hubble deploy mission. Sullivan's role today is that of payload commander, similar to Norm Thaggard on the previous flight. As she described in an oral history interview, the payload commander role came about because these science flights take two to three years of prep work on the crew's part. It takes time to visit all the myriad laboratories and engineering facilities, meeting the science teams, providing input to the instrument designs, and generally keeping things in line. It was important to have someone in a position of authority on the crew, even if the commander wouldn't be needed for a couple of years. Because of this, Sullivan actually knew she'd be flying on this flight before lifting off on her previous flight. As Sullivan tells it, once a mission commander is chosen, the balance of power shifts away from the payload commander, but they still have an important role. They guide on-orbit operations of the payload and are counted on by the commander to be the expert on both the experiments and the team of crew members focused on those experiments. This is Sullivan's third and final mission, but she'll be sticking around the space world, eventually heading the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. To Sullivan's left was Mission Specialist 2 and our flight engineer, David Liestma. We've also seen Liestma three times, most recently on STS-28, a classified mission that probably deployed a communication satellite for the Department of Defense. Liestma has a pretty unusual job on this flight for a mission specialist, but we'll discuss that in a little bit. STS-45 is his third and final flight. Moving downstairs to the mid-deck, we find someone who we'll be seeing a lot of over the next 12 years, Mike Full. Colin Michael Full was born on January 6, 1957, in Louth, England, but considers himself to be from Cambridge. As a teenager, he attended the King's School and later earned a degree in physics from Queen's College, so I guess he's got his bases covered when it comes to royalty. After Queen's College, he earned a doctorate in laboratory astrophysics from Cavendish Laboratories. Full was hoping to work in the U.S. space program, so he moved to Houston, Texas, where he was hired by McDonnell Douglas to work on space shuttle navigation. In 1983, he joined the Johnson Space Center as a payload officer, working on communication satellites popped out of STS-51G, 51I, 61B, and 61C. He was selected as an astronaut in June of 1987, and this is his first of six flights. He'll eventually launch on the shuttle five times, land with a different shuttle, and ride a Russian Soyuz to and from the ISS. Before getting to the payload specialist, I wanted to take a moment to talk about someone who is not flying with us today. Michael Lampton. My heart goes out to Michael Lampton. One quick note, I ran out of time to track down proper sources, so this information on Lampton is just coming from Wikipedia, so take it for what it is, uh, mostly from the fascinating page on cancelled space shuttle missions. Lampton served as a backup payload specialist on STS-9, and was assigned to fly on STS-51H, which was delayed and re-manifested as STS-61K, which was scheduled to fly in 1986, but was cancelled in the aftermath of the Challenger accident. Lampton was next assigned as a payload specialist on this flight, STS-45, which was originally supposed to fly in 1989. Had it stayed on schedule, he likely would have had his chance to fly. Instead, sometime in 1991, he began experiencing back pain and eventually was diagnosed with abdominal cancer, forcing him off of the flight in September of 1991. From what I can tell, he's still around, so he got better, but missing his ride to space is just heartbreaking. Sorry, Mike. With Mike Lampton off the flight, the payload community had to choose from one of two backup payload specialists. Both were put through simulator runs and re-evaluated, 
and while both did a great job, Belgian scientist Dirk Fremont was selected. Dirk Fremont was born on March 21, 1941 in Pope Ringa, Belgium. He earned an electrotechnical engineer degree from the State University of Ghent, and then a doctorate in applied physics from the same institution. He worked on a bunch of space projects for the European Space Agency, including instrumentation for stratospheric balloons, as well as ground support for Space Lab 1. This is his first and only flight. As I mentioned, lots of things from this flight were being reflown from earlier Space Lab missions, and that includes payload specialist 2, Brian Lichtenberg. We last saw Lichtenberg on the first Space Lab mission, STS-9. This is his second and final flight. When asked about some of the challenges of taking on the commander role for the first time, Charlie Bolden specifically called out the difficulty in organizing such a big group of diverse and strong personalities. We've got people from a military and test pilot background, a science background, spaceflight veterans, spaceflight newbies, non-astronauts, and some guy from Belgium. That's a lot to wrangle. To help out, Bolden took a step that probably shouldn't be as unusual as it is and enlisted the help of a NASA psychiatrist to profile the crew. The goal was to learn what motivated each crew member, how they liked to work, how they interacted, and what any pain points might be. The personality tests wouldn't replace the hard work of coming together as a team over the course of their training, but it could help highlight areas that individual crew members and Commander Bolden might want to focus on. Both Charlie Bolden and Kathy Sullivan mentioned the tests in oral history interviews, and both found them to be pretty useful in ensuring a smooth and productive flight. Sullivan mentioned how two of the personality types in the test were extremely mission-driven, and they made up around 15% of the general population. Somewhat unsurprisingly, those personality types made up more than 95% of the astronaut population. The first launch attempt for STS-45 was on March 23, 1992, but was scrubbed around four and a half hours before the scheduled liftoff, before the crew even had a chance to head out to the pad. During the early stages of tanking, gas detectors at the launch pad detected high levels of hydrogen in the air, indicating a leak leading to a scrub. Oh, come on, more hydrogen leaks? Don't worry, this isn't nearly as bad. After the scrub, they saw the leak levels rapidly drop. Ground crews theorized that the umbilical plate was slightly changing shape due to the extreme cold of the propellants, leading to a short transient leak that went away once everything settled. They figured that if they just loaded the prop a little slower, they should be fine. The next day, they tried it out and did indeed see some above-limits leaking, but it soon went away, allowing tanking to continue. From here, no significant issues were encountered other than a 13-minute delay due to weather at the shuttle runway and the transatlantic abort landing sites. In fact, the launch director said that the countdown was so smooth that it was almost a problem for his team. With so few issues to work, it provided no training value to the newer folks on the team, meaning that they'd have to rely more on simulations for their training. But I guess that's a good problem to have. On March 24, 1992, at 8.13 a.m., Space Shuttle Atlantis rose from the pad, and STS-45 was underway. The shuttle was heading into a 57-degree inclination orbit, so flew right up along the east coast of the United States, passing within 40 miles of the coast of North Carolina. I hope someone on the ground waved. While ascent itself was uneventful, the period immediately following main engine cutoff was a little more dramatic than usual. 
Right after Miko, the external tank was jettisoned, and Commander Bolden rotated the orbiter to allow the rest of the crew to get a better look at it as it drifted away. The crew wanted to take photos of the tank to make sure that nothing was amiss, and what they saw did not reassure them. As the tank drifted away from them, it was actively venting propellant from the area where it connects to the orbiter and from the intertank area. Mission specialist Dave Listmo was actually concerned that it might blow up right before their eyes. But there was nothing that could be done in the moment. The tank continued to drift away, and the crew returned their attention to their mission tasks. Engineers on the ground later determined that there was no cause for concern. There's always some extra propellant left in the tank, since it's a lot better to waste a little extra than to come up short. On this flight, as much as 2,700 kilograms of hydrogen was left in the tank. Combine that with the fact that the tank heats up during ascent, and it seems that the passive pressure relief valves were just doing their job. In fact, this may be normal behavior that just hadn't been noticed before, since the crew on this flight were able to observe the tank sooner than usual. In any case, it wasn't a cause for concern after all, so relax, Dave. More concerning was the fact that Atlantis arrived on orbit slower than planned, six kilometers per hour slower to be specific. That might not sound like a big difference, considering that they're traveling at something like 25,000 kilometers per hour, but it's actually a pretty significant amount. The result was that instead of being in a circular orbit 296 kilometers high, they were in a slightly elliptical one, dipping down to 280 kilometers. The mission report attributed the underspeed condition to a faulty assumption by the onboard guidance software, and perhaps more importantly, the attitude of the orbiter when observing the external tank. After Miko, any remaining propellant left in the orbiter plumbing is dumped out the back of the main engines. The engines aren't running, they just spray out the propellant, but that's still a small amount of thrust. By slewing to track the tank, Atlantis was not pointed in the direction of travel, meaning that it missed out on the small boost usually obtained from the propellant dump. The upshot of all this was that instead of immediately preparing to get to work on Space Lab, the crew had to focus on a third Ohm's burn about three hours into the mission in order to circularize their orbit. Normally, this wouldn't necessarily be a big impact, but this Space Lab mission was very carefully choreographed, with time-sensitive experiments and hundreds of small attitude maneuvers to support them. So combine the surprise Ohms 3 burn with the 13-minute launch delay, and the Space Lab payload folks at Marshall Space Flight Center had to scramble to replan the mission timeline. And the payload people at Marshall weren't the only ones working hard. This was going to be a high-workload flight. The crew had once again split up into a red team and a blue team so that they could work around the clock. 24-hour observations would allow more time for collecting data, and would also ensure that both hemispheres were observed in both daytime and nighttime. On the red team, we've got mission specialists Lisma and Foll, and payload specialist Lichtenberg. On the blue team, we've got pilot Duffy, mission specialist and payload commander Sullivan, and payload specialist Fremont. Commander Bolden drifted from shift to shift depending on need, but mostly stuck with the blue team since it's scheduled more closely aligned with the planned landing window. As I alluded to earlier, this was going to be a pretty busy flight for people working on the payloads, as well as people keeping an eye on the orbiter. In addition to the usual day-to-day -day housekeeping and systems checks that go into keeping the orbiter happy and healthy, nearly 200 attitude maneuvers were planned in support of the science payloads. The reason for this is that some experiments wanted to watch the sun pass through the atmosphere at sunset and sunrise. 
Some wanted to look out into deep space, and some just wanted to stare at the sun all day. With this in mind, there was another split in the crew similar to the last flight, orbiter crew and payload crew. This way, both the red team and blue team had at least one mission specialist, a payload specialist, and somebody to maneuver the orbiter. Somewhat unusually for a mission specialist, Dave Liestma was in charge of the orbiter for the red shift. Normally, being able to maneuver the shuttle is a task reserved for the pilot crew, so that must have been a real treat for Liestma on his final mission. While there were a lot of experiments on this flight, the top priority went to one called Space Experiments with Particle Accelerators, which was shortened to CPAC. That's S-E-P-A-C. While CPAC could do some passive observation, the main thing it did was to fire supercharged electron beams at the Earth. No, I'm not kidding. By charging a big capacitor and running large amounts of electricity through its special instruments all at once, CPAC would fire a stream of electrons out of the orbiter down towards the Earth. These electrons would immediately be affected by the magnetic field of the planet, spiraling along magnetic field lines until they reached a pole and plunged down towards the surface, interacting with gases in the upper atmosphere and producing colorful glowing lights. If this sounds like the aurora to you, then you get a gold star for paying close attention in science class, because that's exactly what it is. CPAC was making artificial auroras. Little ones, but still. These little auroras would be observed by other instruments in order to quantify the result of firing the electron beam. The crew even joked that they were the only shuttle to fire photon torpedoes, though I guess if anything they're electron torpedoes. I just can't resist splitting hairs. Firing electron beams at the Earth might seem like a pretty bizarre thing to do on a shuttle mission, but it's actually pretty clever. By firing an electron beam of known intensity and measuring the resulting aurora, scientists would be able to better understand what's happening with natural auroras. If we injected energy A and we saw result B, now in the wild we're seeing a thousand times B, well then we can make some guesses about what the energy input was. Something like that. One side effect of firing the electron beam created an opportunity for student involvement with the NASA experiment. As the electrons ricocheted around the upper atmosphere, it would create radio noise. This noise could be detected as bursts of static on the ground if you had the right equipment. So NASA duly packed up a thousand kits of the right equipment and sent it off to schools all around the world. Students across the globe would be able to listen in on the radio bursts caused by the experiment 200 miles above their heads. Neat. Scientists were especially eager to see the results of this experiment, despite it flying on Space Lab 1, because it had actually failed shortly into that mission. They were able to do some low-power experiments, but the high-power electron beam was rendered inoperative. I wasn't able to track down exactly why, but I can guess. More on that later. It turns out that the CPAC experiment, in addition to providing useful science data, also just looked super-duper cool. On flight day two, one shift of the payload crew started performing the first high-energy firings of the electron beam, while the other shift was down on the mid-deck preparing for bed. Suddenly, a voice from the flight deck called out, Wow, look at that! As Kathy Sullivan describes it, quote, There's a cardinal rule on space flights, or at least all of my crews, which is, there shall be no sentences from the flight deck ending in that. As in, what the hell was that? Because you'll terrify the guys down below who can't see anything. End quote. 
This would be especially alarming during Ascent, when a lot of energy is flying around and the folks on the mid-deck have no choice but to just sit tight and wait for more information. But in this case, within seconds of somebody saying, wow, look at that, all seven faces of the crew were pressed against the windows looking into the payload bay. What they saw looked like it had been transplanted right out of a sci-fi movie. The actual electron beam instrument looks sort of like a can of house paint. Inside the can, the crew could see a blue blob of energy oscillate around and start to grow before suddenly zapping off into space in a bolt. The bolt would then immediately latch onto a magnetic field line, spiraling around it as it headed off into the distance at relativistic speeds. Sullivan continued in her oral history, quote, All this material you drilled into your head in college physics, you're now seeing in front of your eyes. The curvature of the magnetic field lines, the electron gyro radius as this thing spirals around it. End quote. The specialized instruments in the payload bay also picked up on the electron beam, measuring a bright spot in the atmosphere flying away. They had successfully made an artificial aurora. The crew was enjoying the light show when suddenly it stopped. When the Space Lab pallet is connected to the orbiter, there's a big fuse in between them to protect the orbiter in case of a problem with the experiments. But since CPAC was throwing around so much electricity, there was also a big fuse between it and the other experiments. But it wasn't quite big enough. During training, the crew learned the technical details behind this fuse and commented that it seemed a little undersized. The European payload folks agreed, but it was buried too deeply inside the system to easily replace, and it should do the job. Well, yeah, not so much. The fuse had blown, and there was simply no way for the crew to replace it on orbit. CPAC was dead. I think I can now make a guess as to why it failed on STS-9. The flashy instrument only completed three of the 14 experiments it had planned, but the three experiments they got through returned such a wealth of data that the scientists involved with CPAC were actually pretty happy anyway. And the other Space Lab instruments that were watching its artificial aurora had plenty of natural aurora to study. And CPAC was still able to do some passive investigations. In fact, the mission report makes this incredibly cryptic statement, quote, the CPAC used its plasma contactor for experimentation that will help verify a theory that underlies the basic physics on the formation of the universe. I would have expected some additional explanation about such a bold statement, but nope, that's it. So, come to think of it, I guess the only people who really lost out when CPAC's fuse blew were those thousands of kids around the world hoping to hear its static bursts. Bummer. Hopefully they caught the first few firings. But never fear, CPAC wasn't the only source of interesting radio signals coming from the orbiter. That's because flying on board once again was the Shuttle Amateur Radio Experiment, or SARAX. I know I didn't really get into most of the instruments in the payload bay, but honestly, CPAC and its big fizzle were sort of the highlight, since we've already seen the other instruments on earlier flights. And I think you'll be happy with the extra time on SARAX, because I dug up some pretty fun stories. Just to quickly remind you, SARAX is basically just an amateur radio setup that the crew could use from orbit. As I understand it, they didn't even really need special equipment. After all, they've got pretty great visibility. Simply stick an antenna in the window, put on your headset, and you're good to go. Theoretically, this could be used as a backup communication system if there was a problem. And I want to say this actually happened once on the ISS, but I couldn't dig it up in time for this episode. But even if there was a veneer of operational utility, SARAX was mostly flown because it's cheap, easy, and really cool. 
It's a great way to make people on the ground feel more connected to the space program on a personal level. You might think that astronauts who had been trained for years to operate a multi-billion dollar spacecraft could be trusted with a ham radio, but even under the special circumstances, crew members who wanted to use the radio had to pass an FCC test and get their amateur radio license, just like anybody else on the ground. I think that might be part of why Commander Bolden's first impressions weren't super positive. He came to love it eventually, but admitted, quote, I hated it, to be quite honest, initially. But he and several other crew members toughed it out, with Bolden, Sullivan, Listma, and Duffy all being properly licensed to operate the radio. With so few people on board, and such limited time for using the radio, and with so many eager ham operators on the ground, conversations were bound to be a little weird. Anytime they passed over a populated area, the crew might get 50 to 100 calls all at the same time, sort of sounding like static. Eventually, someone who had a more powerful rig or who had really nailed the frequency would rise above the din, seeking to exchange call signs. I'm not an amateur radio operator, but I believe that there are special radio codes that essentially say, hey, I'm here, my name is ABC, or whatever your call sign is. And then someone else says, hi ABC, I'm XYZ. People would sort of collect call signs to see if they could find other folks in interesting places, or simply as far away as possible. So, a lot of people really wanted to be on the official record for having talked to the shuttle. Combine that with people who just wanted to say hi and ask how the weather was up there, and they were bound to get a ton of calls. When the crew got back, they dutifully worked their way through the recordings to confirm which call signs they had responded to, sending confirmation cards through the mail to the addresses on record with those call signs. In the end, something like 1,500 cards were sent out. Among the non-stop call sign exchange requests, there were also some pretty remarkable moments. Kathy Sullivan described how unreal it was being able to see an entire country at once at night, hearing all the voices calling up to her from the surface as lights of their cities glowed below her as she flew overhead. While Dave Liestma was on the radio flying over New Zealand, someone with a particularly big antenna came through loud and clear to say hello, mentioning that he was in Auckland. Liestma looked out the window and told the guy that it was dark where he was on the ground, but it was light up where the shuttle was, so how about you run outside and see if you can see us? The shuttle should be passing right overhead. The guy went quiet for 30 seconds and then came back on all excited, saying, I saw you, I saw you! On another night, Atlantis's orbit took it over Australia on three separate passes, each about an hour and a half apart. Kathy Sullivan was operating the radio, chatting with people on the ground on the third pass when someone got through doing a call sign exchange. Sullivan acknowledged the call sign and moved on, but the guy asked if she could maybe say a little more. He had tracked all three passes with his young daughter despite it being very late at night at this point, and his daughter really wanted to say hello to somebody on the shuttle. Sullivan told all other frequencies to stand by, and for a few minutes, as a star in her sky, talked to the little girl on the ground in Australia. Both of those are pretty poetic moments, so just to keep things from getting too sappy, I've got one that's uh, less poetic. Over the course of the flight, Dave Liestma had found someone in Antarctica who had a good enough radio to reach the shuttle. That meant that if they were careful about it, the crew could chat with somebody on each continent, a real radio achievement, all on one flight. Liestma asked the guy to check in every night so that the rest of the crew could say hi and get their Antarctica credit. Pilot Brian Duffy, knowing that he had Antarctica in the bag, ran through the continents in his head and realized that all he would be missing was Asia. He looked out the window, and sure enough, they were coming up over Japan. 
He throws on the headset, plunks the antenna in the radio, and basically announces, hey, this is the space shuttle. Is anybody out there? As Sullivan told it, what sounded like a 100,000 voices all came back at once. Duffy picked one at random, said, Roger, gotcha. Turned off the radio, took off the headset, and pulled the antenna back out of the window. Mission accomplished. Sullivan chided Duffy, saying, Duffy, you are cruel. There are 99,999 really disappointed people on the ground there. Well, sometimes you just gotta be the lucky one in a 100,000, I guess. As usual, between all the hard science work and putting in time on Cerex, the crew still found spare moments to have fun in their unique environment. They commented that payload specialist Dirk Fremont enjoyed walking around on the ceiling, seemingly upside down. When filming the post-flight presentation, one crew member demonstrated putting trash in the trash compactor on board, pretending to be cautious of and then grabbed by some sort of trash monster inside. And by repurposing some food containers, some unused tools, and a folded-back piece of duct tape, the crew managed to get a good game of golf going on the mid-deck. With the quote-unquote ball making a three-second trip across the mid-deck, they tried to claim the longest golf drive in history, about 15 miles. Take that, Alan Shepard. It was also a great moment where Kathy Sullivan and Brian Duffy were trying to film something using some special bright lights. The lights were pretty hot because they were so bright, so were kept in a little cage. Because of that, in order to attach it to the camera, Duffy had to get a little creative with some tape. Between trouble with the tape and Sullivan being a little picky about shot composition, Duffy started to get a little riled up. Eventually, Sullivan was satisfied that they could start, and Duffy flipped the switch on the light. But he flipped it a little too enthusiastically. The tape tore, the light broke off, and went tumbling across the mid-deck, destroying his work and creating a crazy strobe light effect as the light gyrated and bounced around. Sullivan lost it and just turned into a floating ball of laughter while Duffy gave up on the whole thing. They never did get the shot. As was expected, the flight was extended an extra day when they proved to be sipping at their consumable resources at a reasonable pace. So it wasn't until flight day 9 that the crew packed everything up, closed the payload bay doors, and got ready to head home. Reentry was particularly interesting, since though it was morning when they landed, it was still dark out as the orbiter was enveloped in bright plasma, leading to a great light show. In the final minutes of the entry, Bolden performed a test with an eye towards making return-to-launch-site aborts safer. If an RTLS abort was required, crews wanted the ability to dump the propellant in the forward RCS module, in the nose of the orbiter, getting rid of the volatile and dangerous propellant and making the orbiter lighter. But the FRCS was self-contained. The only way to get propellant out was to burn it, and nobody was sure what that would do to aerodynamics and control. So while flying at Mach 4, and with things decidedly less hectic than an RTLS abort, Bolden fired the FRCS for 10 seconds, giving the aerodynamics folks some data to chew on. Atlantis touched down at the Kennedy Space Center at 7.03 local time, rolling to a stop and closing out a mission lasting 8 days, 22 hours, 10 minutes, and 24 seconds. The crew wasn't quite done yet, though. As Commander Bolden tells it in his oral history, the life scientist people were hoping to study the crew before they re-acclimated to gravity. To keep them as unacclimated as possible, they asked Bolden to allow the crew to be taken off horizontally on gurneys. That'd be sort of a bummer since every crew likes to get out and inspect their vehicle after landing, but it's a small price to pay for some extra science, so sure, why not? Except, Kathy Sullivan was asked about this in her oral history, and flatly denies that it ever happened. She said, I wasn't taken off on a gurney, and the interviewer, seeming a bit surprised, said, 
No? Okay. And Sullivan continued, Nope. Just walked onto the crew transfer vehicle and got into a Barca lounger. The crew transfer vehicle, again, is that vehicle that would come right up to the shuttle hatch, so returning astronauts didn't have to navigate stairs while relearning how gravity worked. I thought this little exchange was pretty funny, and goes to show why it's important to not rely too much on any one interview. Sullivan did say that shortly after landing, the life sciences folks put them through some procedure to study how their joints were working, but no gurneys, apparently. And while still trying to get used to being stuck to the ground all the time, Commander Bolden was lying with his eyes closed when he heard an unfamiliar voice. Newly minted NASA Administrator Dan Golden was there on his first day on the job to congratulate Bolden and ask if he'd be interested in a job at NASA HQ, something Bolden had specifically avoided. He came highly recommended. In his final press conference, outgoing NASA Administrator and former astronaut Dick Truly was asked if he thought the era of astronauts moving into upper management was over. He said that some astronauts would be good at it, and some would not, and specifically called out Charlie Bolden as someone who would be great. His words proved to be prophetic, and I guess Dan Golden got his way, because 17 years later, not only was Charlie Bolden working at NASA HQ, he was running the entire administration. Next time, after years of anticipation, we'll learn how to count to 105, and we'll tell our spell check that yes, that is how I meant to spell Endeavor. Extra U and all. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Pass.